welcome everybody. I'm Erica. And I'm Wes Dodge. And this is The Good Life If You Can Keep It, the cross-partisan podcast where democracy goes to do its push-ups. What's up today, Wes? Oh, I don't know. I We've had a lot of, uh, I guess, boundaries exceeded over the last couple of years in a lot of ways. You know, there's a lot of things that have happened politically I never thought would happen before. And, mm-hmm. you know, t- tying into us being... Uh, ranked choice Nebraska people, I think really a lot of this goes back to people being in fear of being primaried and being Mm -hmm. completely partisan. And as a result, we've got, uh, you know, of the hundred senators, you know, there's probably, and I'm just picking numbers out here, but you know, probably 20 to 30 that are just locked in on the right and nothing's going to change anything. And they are not even shy about it. Mm-hmm. And probably 20 or so on the left. And then the ones in the middle are the ones that are going to make the call. One of the dangers of having such tightly gerrymandered congressional districts is that you get extremely uncompetitive seats where something is obviously going to be blue or it's obviously going to be red. And so you don't have to worry about taking independent votes when you're actually at the job again, you know, in Washington or wherever it is that you show up for work. Um, But then if you do anything that's at all independent minded, then you're at risk of getting primaried from somebody who's going to say, oh, well, look how moderate, look how establishment this person is. And, you know, political parties then are just going to be represented by even more and more extreme candidates. It's very problematic. So the most recent Gallup poll that we were talking about last night on our Zoom call about um, party registration post uh, January 6th, both political parties have lost a percentage point. So I think Dems went from 30% to 29%, Republicans went from 25 to 24, but the independents are now 45% of American voters. That means we have congressional seats where the vast majority of them are highly partisan, but 45% of the electorate is made up of independents that should be the other way around. For example, instead of having like one Joe Manchin and one Mitt Romney in the Senate, there should be about 45 it's a situation we have going on now. That's very depressing. <laughs> we'll keep we'll, we'll keep the battles going, and hopefully we'll get to that spot. And yeah. Uh, yeah. that kind of that kind of gets us to our guest, doesn't it? Yes. Somebody, yes, it somebody does. who wants to work from the middle. Do you want to introduce yeah. who we're going to be talking to today? Yeah. So we talked to Hillary Lombard, the host of the Moderate Party podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. I encourage everyone listening now to go check it out. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, You can also find it just at Martyr. I can't talk. (laughs) Good thing we're doing a podcast, huh? Moderatepartypodcast.com or something like that. Just Google it. You know how the internet works. Um, So we interviewed her on January 27th time lapse between when we recorded that and when we're we recording this um but yeah let's listen to what hillary has to say and then we'll hop back on at the end and tell you all about our petals and pricks so welcome everybody today we have hillary lombard she is the host of moderate party podcast 
That's a podcast that takes a look at political discussions, uh, mostly from the center, from a moderate point of view. From our, our initial discussion, we've learned that you're from Sacramento, California, correct? Yes, sir. And uh, your background's in uh, web design, and uh, you have a background in international, what, studies, politics, is that right? Uh, yeah, international relations. As a result of that, uh, why don't you just tell us how you came to deciding to run your own podcast? Um, I think that for me, basically, I grew up in a swing state, Nevada. My whole view of politics was through a very moderate lens. Um, I think that especially the area that I grew up in, which is Reno, it's just, it's very, very purple. And then I made the choice to move to California and that changed completely. Um, and then as politics started to become more contentious uh, from the 2016 election to now, I started noticing that I myself was being pulled to one of two extremes and I started to get very uncomfortable with that place. And I was trying to kind of claw my way back to the center, but I was finding it increasingly difficult to do so um, because there really wasn't a, a conversation happening in that place. It's like we had surrendered the middle ground completely. Basically figured that if I am not seeing that conversation happen, then I should do my part and make it happen. So I started Moderate Party um, and it has been awesome. It's just a great way to have those conversations as you were saying, from the center instead of the left or the right, and in an energetic way, because I feel like the other problem I ran into is like the only people that want to talk about moderate politics are crypt keepers or <laughs> people <laughs> that want to hand me a very, very dense policy paper. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, if this is how we're doing it, we're never going to win votes back from the much more engaging uh, radical right and radical left. Mm -hmm. And you've probably experienced the people on the right or the left are more activated and the moderates seem to come out during general elections. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think absolutely. You see um, that the people that are on the radical sides of the political spectrum tend to be highly engaged. They're there all the time. And I think that your moderates are less politically engaged or they have less loud opinions because more often than not, they are the middle class. So it's like they middle and even like lower middle class, everybody's out at their jobs. They don't have time to be on Twitter um, and they're not angry. So I think that when you're not angry, you're less activated, especially on social media, which too often dominates the conversation. Oh, I was just going to piggyback off what you were saying about angry people. I, I was just talking with my husband the other night about you know, I'm a fairly recent arrival on the Twitter scene. I think I created a, an account after the 2016 election and I just kind of let it sit there until uh, the pandemic hit. And then I was, you know, at home a lot more and I was like, what's going on on Twitter? Like, what do, what do people even do on there? I think I had like two followers. One was my husband and another one was like a person I used to work out with doing like online. You know, at first I was like, wow, I can get I can get opinions right from the source. Like I can listen to political commentators. I can get information from journalists right from the source. I can, I can get information directly from politicians. I was like, this is fascinating. And, you know, by the end of the election season, <laughs> I was just like, is anyone on Twitter not angry all of the time? 
<laughs> that seems to be the general consensus that we came to. And, you know, we were talking about, um, I think it was, oh, Holly and then Cruz and Rubio. And that, you know, they kept talking about the woke mob and cancel culture and the radical left and so on and so forth. And I was like, you know, when I heard about that kind of talk just on some other some other media site or just from friends talking to me about those kinds of ideas. I was like, Oh yeah, well that's, that's pretty ridiculous. You know, they're just being overblown when they're talking about it. And I was telling them the other night, I was like, you know, honey, I think I know what they're talking about now, because if you click on any of their posts, any of their tweets, it's automatic, like complete outrage. You are, you know, the worst person ever, like, picking apart their, um, it's not even about their ideas at all. It, if you go on a conservative politician's tweet, it's just insults and it's get out of here. We don't want to hear from you. And I was like, oh, is that what they mean when they talk about cancel culture? <laughs> but it's silly because then you'll also have people on the right doing their own version of cancel culture while screaming about cancel culture. It's, it's very interesting and I, I was just thinking you know what about all the people a who aren't on twitter and b aren't angry all of the time like i i understand that you know a lot of political change comes from anger over a problem but that's how to me the problem gets highlighted and what about the people who are supposed to fix the problem because right. Problems can't necessarily get fixed if you have two groups of people in a room yelling at each other and not even trying to find a solution. So, especially when it's so performative, like it's yes. like they aren't in the room to work it out. They're in the room to get a clip of them being like, "I would never," so that they can <laughs> put it on Twitter and then their fans can be like, "Wow, mm -hmm. excellent work, excellent work," sticking it to the libs or like sticking it to the GOP. Uh huh. Exactly. I had a very a similar. Um, experience to you because I was listening to or I had been a listener of Pod Save America and then I also listened to Megan Kelly's podcast uh -huh. and what I will say is that like Megan Kelly and I agree on some things not on others same with the Pod Save guys but she tweeted out something kind of like snide about Joe Biden's message of unity and I was like okay Megan but then I saw <laughs> the first comment was from the host of Pod Save America and he was like you are pathetic Yep. And I was just like, that what an ugly thing to say to somebody mm -hmm. that you don't know. And like her comment was not even, I mean, it was very benign. Mm -hmm. And like that really was like I that stuck with me is just like, wow, these are the people that I was trusting to inform me. This is how they behave on social media. Mm -hmm. And I think like the her only crime is having an opinion different than yours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny. That. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's funny because I've noticed Twitter seems to be a lot of, you're a hypocrite. No, you're a hypocrite. Well, what about this? And what about that? I think it was on like left, right and center where somebody brought up a really, really old French quote, um, which is, and I'm just going to say it in French because it sounds really fancy, honestly, but it's <laughs> l'hypocrisie est l'hommage que le vice fait à la vertu, which means hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. 
And that really oh, struck whoops. me. What isn't that a great one? I just oh, love it whoa. so much. Yeah, it's just like mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, it's like okay, we can call out each other's hypo- hypocrisy all we want to play gotcha politics and outrage politics, or we can see that the spotlight that we're shining is on the same problem. Like if you think it's bad that I do this, and I think it's bad that you do this. We think it's bad that we do this. Let's stop. <laughs> yes. So it's almost yeah. like I must be hypocritical to combat your hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, yeah, I see how that's a problem. What can we do to solve it? It's, it's, you're the problem. No, you're the problem. It's like, how about, and I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah, how about we are the problem? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you a question about California, if I could. Of course. Um, now, I've read that they use different electoral systems in different parts of the state. Is that accurate? Yes. And I've heard they uh, they use a top two formula in a lot of areas. Is that what they're using in your area? Um, I actually believe that the top two, any statewide election, um, and actually, I believe in the local elections as well, since we are a very, very blue state, the primary is basically between the top two vote getters instead of the champions on either side. So often it's two Democrats going against each other, mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, how do you feel about that? I actually like that system in the sense that I think that it encourages moderation in a sense because basically the divide comes down to moderate versus progressive in a lot of these things, like how candidates are differentiating themselves. It's not like, oh, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, so just vote for me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it becomes much more moderating, I think in a way very similar to some of the reforms that you're seeing nationwide about primaries, basically, like when you have to appeal to a broader set of people or even ranked choice voting, when you have to appeal to that wider group, it is much more of a moderating influence. Um, I think that the critiques of it relating to like what role special interests play, I think that that's definitely worth looking at. It's not a perfect system by any means, but I generally support it. Does it appear to be reducing the amount of like negative advertising uh, that's pumped into elections? Like here, here in Omaha, we're a, we're the purple dot, you know, we're the blue dot. I don't know if you've picked up on that by watching the national news or not, but uh, we just got completely buried with negative advertising during this whole election cycle. And I'm curious if in a place like that has a top two where you might have a moderate going against a progressive, do you still have that kind of influence going on? I would say just anecdotally, absolutely not. Because my inbox was full of negative mailers. Um, to be fair, in my district, that one of the more contentious races was for one of our county commissioners, weirdly enough, but <laughs> he was running as an independent. I, I think I might have a picture, uh, if you want to include it in the show notes, I'll try to find it, of all of the negative mailers that I received in a single day. It was like 22 wow. or something like that. And granted, I do not check my mail as diligently as I can, but I could not believe it. It's one of the more negative election cycles that I've ever 
like I mean, been a part of, I guess. We actually awesome. kept a little folder this election cycle because uh, we too, I don't know why it, well, honestly, it was mostly coming from the national, from the national level, but this last round of elections, we just had like straight up propaganda coming into our mailbox. Like it was intense with like the coloring and just like the font. I was like, huh. I feel like a person could make an entire college course on, you know, American propaganda in 2020. So we definitely, you know, my husband kept trying to recycle some of us. No, I want to keep this. He's like, why? I was like, for the grandchildren, they have to see what we went through. It's commemorative. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Personally in your own life, how do you approach policy discussions with friends and family who might be strong partisans? Um, <laughs> it's kind of a it, doozy. It's not easy. I will say that like, I kind of have to psych myself up for it. Number one is that mm -hmm. I have to be prepared to outlast them, I guess is like mm -hmm. the, like, it's definitely an endurance game. Like some of the best advice that I could give to anybody that's trying to engage with somebody that disagrees with you is let them air their grievances first. I'm trying to train myself to do much more in the last like two years or so is to accept what they have to say as sincere, mm -hmm. no matter what it is, like no matter how crazy it is, I take it as valid and true to them. Even if like, cause I used to fall into the trap where I'd be like, well, factually. And then I'm like, no, no, no. I just need to accept that it, it at least feels true. Um, and that they're coming at it honestly. Like I think that extending the benefit of the doubt to people that disagree with you is really something that we need to do more often. So I guess I engage, I let them talk first and then I try to take all of their concerns seriously. And when I respond to them, I try to find anything that we can agree on. Like what piece of the truth do both of us have? Or have I ever felt similarly? Uh -huh. Like this Thanksgiving, anecdotally, I had a conversation with uh, my cousin who is a truck driver has some very strong opinions on climate change. Uh -huh. And like, I wanted to engage with him about that. And my family kept coming in, they're like, are you okay? Is this, do you, do you need us <laughs> to pull you out? And I'm like, no, this is, this is fine. Uh -huh. Like I genuinely, I want to hear because I, one thing I worry about is that if I'm only hearing from people that agree with me, then I'm completely blind on one side of an issue. Mm -hmm. Because even if you have all of the facts on something, it's like, if you, don't account for the feelings on an issue. I think that you don't have all of the facts on something. Part of your purpose to kind of help people engage in that kind of conversation, or do you have a, a, an end goal of, of what you're trying to accomplish through it? I think, I mean, I've talked a little bit about trying to make moderate, not a boring thing and trying yeah. to really energize the center. But I think that it absolutely is about engaging in that conversation. Cause I think that I hope that when people listen to the show, it's like, okay, I too can engage with people that I don't necessarily agree with. Like I got a lot of flack um, online for having an episode about the future of conservatism. The shit that I got from people was like, it's a moderate podcast. Why are you talking uh -huh. about conservatism? And it's like, because I want to understand. Uh -huh. And the future of conservatism was one of moderation like mm -hmm. uh, what that particular guest was talking about. So I think that, and then I think the other one is just kind of exposing people to different ideas. Like 
I, I've said on the show a lot is I want to talk to everybody. Like I want to hear every opinion. And I think that that doesn't betray the moderate point of view. Moderate is more of a way of going about things as opposed to an actual ideology. Absolutely. Thinking about how, you know, over the course of this past year, but mostly the election cycle, I, I started listening to podcasts a lot. For one, I had listened to a couple, you know, podcasts by some female stand-up comedians that I like and things like that. And, you know, was just like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to hear what people are saying about politics going on these days. And oddly enough, I, I don't remember how I heard about them, but I started listening to the bulwark. I started listening to the dispatch and I was like, ah, wow. I do not agree with the policies that they're talking about, but I absolutely agree with the pro-democracy stance these people are taking. Yes. It's almost starting to feel like, yes, there's right and left, but there's also moderates who, to my mind, are interested in working towards solutions. Yeah. The activists in the forefront saying, here, here are the problems we see out in the real world. And then you have politicians who kind of, you know, they get the information, but they also recognize that there's going to be resistance and are kind of there in the caboose saying, yes, please keep going. We can do this. It's just going to take a second mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, we have to work with everybody. This still is a democracy. We have a lot of people that we need to listen to. And or I think that applies also to politicians like AOC. Mm -hmm. um, she gets a lot a lot of shit from everyone really but like uh -huh. conservatives and then moderates and i was really disappointed to see the shit she was getting from moderates because i think that both are necessary it's mm -hmm. like like she's very progressive and in my opinion she should be she represents one of the bluest districts in the country like she should be the bluest politician just like <laughs> if you are from a deep red district in Alabama, I expect you to be a deep red politician. That's how you represent your constituents. She has big activist energy. Her role is to push as hard as she can on those issues. And then I think that the other side is gonna push as hard as they can to stop her. And then I think that the moderate is gonna get in there and get it done. Because mm -hmm. I think that if we accept that both sides are right in at least some way, we have big problems with racial justice in this country. Mm -hmm. big big problems and we activists are pushing politicians to act on that because if they weren't politicians wouldn't it's hard you know like it is mm -hmm. hard it would be so much easier to work on like infrastructure <laughs> everyone loves a nice like road and it's right. easy they i think that activists and people if i'm giving them the benefit of the doubt are pushing like issues to the forefront that we wouldn't be dealing with without that pressure how do we reconcile these two extremes mm-hmm the national parties tend to demonize people from different areas of the country. Uh, I don't know if you remember Ben Nelson. He's one of the reasons we have Obamacare because of a vote, a vote he cast to allow it to come to the floor. Uh, but he didn't run again from Nebraska, probably because of that vote. He's a Democrat who uh, uh, is pro-life. So he gets crucified for that nationally, but it's probably the reason he was in office in Nebraska. You know, so... Uh, uh, it seems like in different parts of the country, you said AOC needs to be as blue as she can be. Uh, I think I think the national parties probably need to back off and and realize that you can be a different kind of Democrat or a different different kind of Republican depending on uh, 
the pond you live in. I th yeah, I think absolutely, because I think that one of the problems with polarization is that we are forcing every identity that you have to line up behind one of two major parties. Mm -hmm. And I think that the pro-life, pro-choice argument is a good one because like, regardless of how you feel about it, you feel strongly about it. Like, I don't know anybody that's like, <laughs> um, <laughs> that person does not exist. <laughs> that person does not exist. So that's a hot, hot issue. And I get frustrated with Democrats when they say like, oh, if you're pro-life, you are, there's like, no, you have to compromise what you think because we will run you out of the party if you mm -hmm. don't. Like, if we really want representative government, we should want people like Joe Manchin or a lot of different viewpoints within each political party. And I think that the problem is that we have completely gotten rid of that. And then when you look at that, it's, it's a weird dynamic because you get the people on the right and the left that are elected, and then they're in these pigeonholes when they get in. And then you've got people like Manchin, and I was just looking it up while we were talking, Tester from Montana, that's a Democrat yes. from Montana. Then all of a sudden, uh, those people have a lot of power, which is great for them, but uh, you might be giving up power because you have to align uh, with the base on the right or the left to get elected. And, and then when you get in, you can't cast votes that actually get things done because you have to think about the next election cycle. Right, especially in swing districts where we're seeing like a lot of high turnover. It's like, that's, I think that those are the districts where moderates play a very, very critical role. But it also, in being a moderate, you're making yourself an enemy of both sides. When moderate politicians are taking stances on the issues that got them elected, like if you're a Democrat and you don't support Medicare for all, or you're skeptical of the Green New Deal, that is probably why you won However, that is exactly why you'll be primaried in your own party. And then you'll also get a strong Republican opponent who's not going to say like, oh, you were actually really moderate on this issue. They're going to say like, you are a socialist hippie. Get out of here. <laughs> so what do you think the remedies are? If you, if you had to propose something as a remedy, what, do you, what would you suggest? First and foremost, opening the primaries would do a lot. Ranked choice voting will do a lot force politicians to actually appeal to a wider base of people. The more people you have to appeal to, the more moderate you get. So I think that those two things are huge reforms that would really help with polarization. There is like a, I guess, another component of it that kind of speaks to individual accountability. I think that people need to pay attention, like get educated, pay attention, see how your representative is voting. And if, or if they're doing some of this this grandstanding shit that you don't like that's not getting stuff done. Yep. Like, I think that that's definitely one of the goals of moderate parties. Like, moderates need to get off the bench because <laughs> I think that what happens is like when we, when we're just happy, like being over here, dealing with our other business, you're letting extremists dictate the conversation. Representatives are only pandering to their base mm -hmm. because their base are the ones that show up and make their voices heard. So I think that ranked choice voting and opening up a primary, those are great like um, democratic reforms, but I think that there's also a big need for personal accountability. Absolutely. So have you looked at HR1 uh, in, at any level? Uh, yes, actually, so okay. I- It's a bill that has a, a whole laundry list of political reforms that include, uh, I don't think it has ranked choice voting in it per se. It says, I think that the, the facility, the, 
the equipment has to be available to accommodate it if it's it's adopted. Uh, gerrymandering reform, uh, what is it? Uh, automatic voter registration and those kinds of things. So it's a it's just a general uh, democratic reform bill. So anyway, uh, elaborate on you know wh what you you think about that bill. I love it. I love all of it. Um, I think that if I had my way, I don't think it goes far enough. But also, I think that in order for it to pass, it can't go as far as I think it should. There should be a Sound couple like bills. like a true moderate. Hey, um, I think we try to stuff too much in. Like, we're like, I'm going to pass this, and it's going to have every issue I've ever wanted in it, and then it won't, won't pass. So it's like, I think that we should absolutely pass HR1. My fear is that Congress won't because I think that democratic reform goes directly against their personal ambitions and their ability to hold power. So mm -hmm. one thing I've become increasingly skeptical of recently is Congress's ability to police itself because that's mm -hmm. essentially what we're asking it to do. Like the executive can't police it because Congress is the check on executive power. The Supreme Court can, but it's like, it has to go to the court. Like who's looking out for voter suppression? Or like yep. who is making sure that we are keeping our democracy healthy? It has to be Congress, but Congress benefits from our democracy not being healthy. In order for that to pass, Congress almost has to vote against its own self-interest in the interest of the country, which seems like duh, but obviously is not that simple. Mm -hmm. We do have a lot of Republican senators that seem to be uh, thinking about checking out or checking out. So maybe, uh, maybe they'll make a, a courageous vote, who knows? We can cross our fingers. Why, why do we worship parties like God? And it's like, mm -hmm. why do you have to have this loyalty to them when I don't even know if they really serve us that well? You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't know if they serve the average American, mm -hmm. but our representatives worship them. And it's like 20% of the American public does not, or only 20% of the American public approves of Congress. And that's our representative voice. Yeah. So it's like, well, no wonder people check out. But but yeah. if you look at those polls, then they ask them about their specific representative. And then all of a sudden it goes up to 70 or 80% or whatever. Right. It's, it's north of 50%. So they hate the body as a whole, but they, yeah, they love their guys. So uh, yeah. uh, therein lies the, uh, the issue, I think. Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly that you're right <laughs> about HR1 and the difficulty of getting it passed at the national level. And when you look at the five senators who voted in a bipartisan manner, and notice I'm not saying with the Democrats, right? Because it, right. this is in a bipartisan manner. Mm -hmm. They came from four out of the five states that were represented there are four states that have either gone through or are in the process of going through some of these pro-democracy electoral reforms. You have Susan Collins from Maine, they have ranked choice voting and they also split their electoral votes. Mm -hmm. um, you had Ben Sass from Nebraska. Hey. Oh my gosh, you guys should be so proud of him. What an expert. I know it. I know it. He's he's going to be one of my, my pedals. Um, Wes and I do a little segment at the end called Pedals and Pricks. So pedals are people who, <laughs> who did, did something to uphold democracy and the pricks are people who are kind of getting in the way of democratic process. But a unicameral, so our uh, state government is nonpartisan, and we have 
um, you know, our electoral college votes are split by congressional district and we're working on ranked choice voting. Uh, you had Mitt Romney from Utah. They have one of the country's biggest ranked choice voting movements going on right now. And then Murkowski out of Alaska, where they just passed that massive, beautiful open primary ranked choice voting top four vote getters. And I think they were, you know, something about was the last thing it was like transparency and campaign funding it's a pretty good sign if bipartisan votes are actually coming out of states where the constituents themselves are saying no we want democracy we want representation and they kind of force their hands at the local level to have a bit more of a say of how people get to Congress in the first place, because you're right. We can't expect people to get to Congress when they're beholden to a two-party system to all of a sudden say, I'm going to do the right thing. HR one is, is fantastic. It's fantastic if it happens, but things like rate choice voting and open primaries, that'll, that'll get us there incrementally, which I know nobody wants to hear, but we did see that there were several House Republicans who said that they were getting death threats. And you got to wonder, is that why they're actually voting the way that they are? But I do think if we don't reward the people who are speaking out now, we're just going to see further extremism and that it is worth saying he wasn't right here, but he is right now, right? If we're looking back, we're saying, oh, I don't necessarily have to say him not saying anything during the previous impeachment, I disagree with that. But him saying something during this impeachment, I agree with that. I, I think there's enough room for me to, to kind of hold two things to be true at the same time. That was a good thing you did, but you suck in every other way. <laughs> like, I think that... <laughs> I just, or at least I just think... say and... Like yeah. that was a good thing you did and you suck in every other way. Like can, we can at least have both be true. <laughs> and I think that those like those pats on the head are necessary. I don't want to make Ben Sass into, you know, a picture perfect model of bipartisanship because he ain't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, I I do take a little bit of pride in, you know, being one of the states that has a unicameral and a nonpartisan legislature and just kind of seeing, yeah, that that kind of that kind of desire from a local electorate does tend to produce a Republican like Ben Sass and a Democrat like Ben Nelson like Ben Nelson. So you know, what can we do as citizens to to improve our democracy, which I think is, from what I read and understand, is part of the point of your podcast, and I think it's the point of ours as well. I guess uh, if I had to choose what to leave your listeners with, it would be primarily that there is a moderate way forward. Our middle ground needs to be defended. And I think that if we stay on the bench as moderates or centrists, or honestly just like average Americans, we will surrender that ground and our country by extension to extremists. So I think that what that looks like is paying attention to what your representatives are doing, how they're speaking for you. And if they are not speaking for you the way that you want them to, you need to vote them out. And there's a lot of things that happen that are boring and like staying engaged is not always fun or easy, but you need to do that because what we've seen with the insurrection of the Capitol is that our democracy is at stake. Like this is the time. Like there are, there are times that you can tune out and this just isn't one of them. 
I think that if they're listening to this podcast, then they are already doing something right. Mm -hmm. I think that they are already trying to educate themselves on the health of our democracy and what they can do to improve it. And I think that that just needs to continue. You need to advocate for people who disagree with you, not just people that do agree with you and take the time to understand as opposed to just listen. Right. That's, that's awesome. Right. Uh, So Hillary, what are some of the pro-democracy content creators that you think would resonate with our listeners? So any other podcasts, any news outlets, any big thinkers that you are super into that might interest people who are listening to us today? Um, obviously I'm very biased, so I would say moderate party podcast. Yeah, that's a good um, one. I must say it's a good one. <laughs> thank you very much. I think after that, um, I am a big fan of the dispatch podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's a center right one, but I think that their approach to, to the news and the politics is, it's just what it should be. I guess. Right. Um, right. I think I am a big advocate for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences report, Our Common Purpose, that is literally a to-do list, 31 things that we need to do to fix democracy and uh-huh. the organizations that are working to do it. Uh-huh. Check that out. And I know that when I say like, it's a policy report, everybody goes to sleep, but like this one's super <laughs> readable and very actionable. So I recommend that. And then the last two that I would say is Lee Drutman. He uh, writes for, I believe, 538, but he put out a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Uh That is a eye-opening read. Um, And then the other one would be Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was one of the ones that I read that motivated me to start this podcast. And I think that every American should read it. Like if I could make it a requirement in schools, I would do it. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think that that would be be those. Excellent. What is maybe some advice for people who are getting just exhausted by the political climate. I know you say that moderates tend to be the people who are not necessarily engaged uh, politically. And for myself, I'm a little engaged. (laughs) I'm a little (laughs) engaged just because, you know, I found out about ranked choice voting and I was like, yes, we have to do this first of all. Um, But then I just kind of started listening to as many viewpoints as possible. And I do notice though, that, you know, some people want to talk about it. Some people don't want to talk about it. And I get that the exhaustion is pretty much coming from people who are engaged or not engaged. So I was just wondering if you have any advice, maybe a way to kind of tiptoe in, like dip a toe in the pool to kind of get people used to um, being more engaged with their local politicians in particular without getting overwhelmed. That's such a great question. I think first and foremost is pick the issues that you care about and care about them a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I think that we can all very easily uh, fall into the trap of like compassion fatigue. Uh-huh. Like if I'm following every news story on every issue locally, nationally, like globally, mm-hmm. you're going to get tired and you're going to get bummed out and things are just going to feel too big. So I think like pick the ones that matter the most to you mm-hmm. and follow them closely and care about them a lot. Beyond that, um, I think podcasts are so great because it makes engaging politically a part of your like daily routine kind of um so i would say find people and find podcasts like the one that you're listening to right now people that you like 
it makes it easy to get a summary from a source that you trust in a way that isn't painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A big role that podcast producers have today, when especially in the political scene, is like, we read it so you don't have to. <laughs> That's uh, fair. Writers that you like, that you trust, and just just commit to doing that. Like, find somebody that's writing on your issue. I would try, like, if there's bonus points, I would try to diversify your news sources so that you're getting a complete picture. Mm-hmm. That's a very, those are all very good pieces of uh, advice there. I was just thinking you. about, you know, the importance of reading different news sources to get different takes. Um, and it kind of reminded me of class today. <laughs> so in, in one of the, the classes that I'm teaching this semester, it's a, it's a literature course. Sometimes when I think of, well, what does it mean to teach literature? It doesn't necessarily just mean like, here's what happens in a book. Like that is not at all the task. It's more learning how to read and how to interpret what you've read you know, ever since the whole fake news narrative came out, people were like, well, I'm going to disbelieve everything that comes from the right, or I'm going to disbelieve everything that comes from the left. But I feel like it's one of the important skills that people have just kind of let fall by the wayside as, you know, consumers of news media is knowing who's writing, who are they writing for, what is the picture they're giving me, and what is their goal in giving me that picture? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that everything that they are reporting on is false. It means that this person wrote this with this audience in mind, not knowing to distinguish political commentary from news. Like right. those are two different things. <laughs> Sean Hannity is not a newscaster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just acknowledging that that doesn't mean Sean Hannity doesn't have a right to say what Sean Hannity wants to say. Right. Um, but it does mean that people who are listening shouldn't take an opinion show as a news show. Like we, we need to analyze what we're reading, not just read it, take it as fact. Yeah, because like I think that with the New York Times and the Washington Post, the bulk of their reporting is factually accurate. Mm-hmm. But I think that to your point, where it kind of requires some critical thinking is like, what did they choose to include and what did they choose to exclude Mm -hmm. and why this adjective and not this Mm -hmm. adjective it really you can look at the same article written from the perspective of a right-leaning news organization and a left-leaning news organization and they're telling you about the same event they just use different adjectives (laughs) and they just describe different people differently different actors in there Um, but that doesn't mean both are quote unquote wrong. Right. And I feel like that is, that's some nuance that's been completely washed away by the fake news media. Like those are. (laughs) Well, and like, yes, frankly, I do believe them over like a fringe blog Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) or like over Reddit. Yeah. Or the YouTube citizen journalists. Over some guy. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Kevin over there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Not, I no offense I to Kevin. I'm Kevin's. sure there are yes. <laughs> okay. Um, how can people find you, by the way? Um, if they wanted to follow you on social media or look up your podcast, how might they go around plugging into Hillary Lombard? Okay, so um moderatepartypodcast.com is where we host the podcast. It's also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. You just have to search moderate party podcast. 
Um, we are on Twitter at moderatepod. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Hillary Lombard. Um, my name is spelled Someone. with an I as opposed to the famous Hillary. That's so. true. That's true. I kept doing a typo and I was like don't do that it's impolite (laughs) (laughs) to ask someone to come on your podcast and uh, spell their name wrong I wouldn't have addressed it but like I would have noticed (laughs) (laughs) you know it does it hurts right here I get Erica with a K sometimes I'm like I mean it's close sounds the same but (laughs) (laughs) all right well thanks so much this has been fantastic Thanks for being with us. I appreciate your taking the time to share some of your ideas and philosophies. And uh... thank you guys for having me on. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you to Hillary for being kind enough to be on our show. And I hope you'll check out her her podcast. Uh, I, I think it's always too good to work from the middle. And she uh, she hit on some great uh, ideas and concepts that uh, I think could could help us all so Wes who are your pedals and pricks this time maybe we should explain to people who might not have listened to the first episode where the term pedals and pricks came from yes I uh, had the fortune of having three children and uh, two boys one of which uh, ended up going through the the scouts uh, scouting system and he was not a conventional scout Uh, as a result of that I would have to go to campouts with him didn't necessarily love it, but uh, <laughs> at the end of every camp out, we had to go through this process called Roses and Thorns, where we discuss what was good about the camp out and what was bad about the camp out. So they go around and say, hey, well, who are your roses? Who are your thorns? And we've decided for the sake of our podcast to adopt the same principle, but uh, we're calling it Petals and Pricks. Petals being people who advance uh, our democracy and pricks being those who uh, who don't help out at all. Yeah, who are really stomping the brakes on the whole process, coming up the works. So who's your pedal this week? Uh, I'm going to be a little outside the box and a little non-political, uh, but I'm going to go How with... dare. I'm going to go with... <laughs> I'm going to go with cat lawyer. Cat lawyer? Oh, <laughs> I thought you were talking about a person named Cat, nope. last nope. name lawyer, but no, I know the guy, I'm yeah. not a cat. Yeah. Bless his it, heart. Oh yeah. my goodness. <laughs> ha- having done many uh, hearings on Zoom, um, I can't watch that for more than 10 seconds without just, you know, I don't always laugh out loud immediately, but the second <laughs> I watch that, now, I, I do question the judge's, uh, judge's judgment because at the point where the guy says, uh, your honor, I am not a cat. And the judge responds, I can see that. Uh, well, he sure looks like a cat. He at sure that looks like to a, me. a very sad cat. Oh my goodness. That was, uh, that was very hilarious. And I, yeah. I felt bad for the guy, but it was also fairly endearing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll call it an inadvertent pedal. How about that? <laughs> he was trying his best, wasn't he? Bless his heart. Yeah. How about your pedal? Oh, my pedal, I'm going to still go with Ben Sass. So when we were talking to Hillary uh, on the 27th of January, I was talking a little bit about Ben Sass and how he was, you know, just making comments in the media about, you know, no, these are things that we cannot accept from the president. I don't remember exactly what, what that was, you know, what the context was at the time. Um, but since then, the Nebraska GOP has decided to censor Ben Sass. Um, for voting, it was just, you know, the constitutionality of impeachment question, which to me 
politicizing even that is very disingenuous. Uh, but the response video that Ben Sass put out to the Nebraska GOP, I think, kind of hit every nail on the head that we would have hoped to hear from somebody who values democracy in this country. And he was just saying, we have to stop lying to people. We have to stop voting in, in a certain way just because of the letter behind someone's name. I was elected to be an independent thinker. And now that I am doing that, you're going to, you know, come after me. Basically talking to them like normal human beings. Like he's like, come on, man, <laughs> this is not who we are. Um, or at least we shouldn't be. And I, and I gotta say, you know, I may not agree with every single vote that Ben Sass has ever taken. I might not agree with most of the votes that he's ever taken, but if our choices are going to come down to, you know, somebody like Ben Sass or, you know, even, even I'll, I'll even throw this out there because I know that it's definitely a complaint that I can, I can understand. And I think is made in good faith is why didn't he speak up sooner? Why didn't he say anything during the first impeachment or when all of these other things were going on? He disappeared during the Kavanaugh hearing. He did. He yeah. did. He disappeared during the Kavanaugh hearing. He voted against impeachment last year. So he took many not so courageous actions. So I'm, I'm not going to put him on a pedestal or anything, but I will say that given our choices, I would rather have someone who wasn't a actively egging on what eventually became a violent mob and B, finally stood up and said no to a violent mob. We were talking earlier in the, in the intro about, you know, people being afraid of primaries, but we also have to consider that people are, have actually been afraid for their lives and for the safety of their families. And there is a, a certain level of bravery that, that comes with somebody like Ben Sass speaking up and saying that this isn't who we are and we can't go on like this so so pedal for this week is going to be ben sass appreciate it that goes to you ben not that he's listening what about your pricks there wes uh i'm gonna kind of go broad on my pricks this week and hey i got broad pricks too yeah yeah i uh <laughs> uh can't pick on one person uh individually but i guess i'm just frustrated watching the impeachment process all the way around and not even because of where it looks like it's headed. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, the hypocrisy that, that we see and, and we see it from both sides. You know, the, mm -hmm. the same people that uh, would have been calling for Obama's head for, uh, you know, look, wearing the tan suit, you know, people like to throw that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just, just something minute or doing too many, uh, um, executive orders or whatever and saying you should impeach him uh, those same people now are you know just say there's no way there should be an impeachment uh, for what transpired at the capitol and what led up to that i've read a couple books on morality and uh, one of the things that you see a lot is situational morality you know mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're seeing here you know mm -hmm. we've got is uh, that the same kind of concept as uh, moral relativism where some things are good in some contexts, but bad in another or. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. And, okay. and frankly, it's like, uh, you know, when my guy, when my guy is at risk, then, uh, 
then, uh, you know, it was a mistake. It was, you, you just didn't understand him. But when the other guy's at risk, uh, mm-hmm. he's just the devil. He, you know, mm-hmm. he, uh, he, he knew it. And we're seeing that. And I'm, I'm trying to play this from both sides because I'm trying to be fair about it. But uh, uh, I keep trying to bring us back to ranked choice because that's what we do here. And I think once again, ranked choice would help people not have to fall into that trap of being in a, a situational morality uh, environment, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing, you know, uh, heck look at Lindsey Graham. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. the, uh, if you look at the, the clips from him and Ted Cruz and some, some of these other people, uh, and, and lay the current p- person up against the person that existed three or four years ago, uh, a general, uh, grand prick to, uh, the senators and the congressmen and, uh, even the pundits that are uh, inconsistent uh, mm-hmm. as to how justice should be applied, depending on whether uh, you're a D or an R. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're. Whatever. So I can't decide if this is a massive pricks or just just like a whole, like really big one. But it's kind of the, and it's even more not even. I won't say that it's people. I'll say that it's a mentality that's kind of spread like wildfire. It's this general idea of screaming at the mainstream media and calling everything fake news and rejecting news and facts as they come out just out of hand. I find it to be very dangerous and frankly, quite lazy. I think we talked about it again a little bit with Hillary about this concept of, yes, you know, one news organization might have, they might present a set of facts with a a lean on it to the left, or they might present a set of facts with a lean on it to the right. So we might think of, um, say, a news hour on MSNBC versus uh, Chris Wallace on on Fox News. But that's not the same thing as these facts are lies and these things that are being you know talked about on the news never happened are untrue those those are two completely separate concepts and i have seen quite a few people on my own social media who have taken it upon themselves even if they see a news article shared that is from the quote msm as if that is, you know, completely terrifying. And they, and I'm doing air quotes here, they are the ones who are ruining our country. They just reject all of the information in that piece out of hand and will instead only trust news sites that have proven, you know, have proven themselves to be people who spread misinformation, complete lies, and personal attacks on human beings. And I really am against this idea that a human being can't read an article and read a leaning into the information that is being provided and still accept the information as being true. It just breeds this sort of anti-reality thinking that everything, everyone is always conspiring and all people conspiring are inherently doing something evil. People conspire all the time and we never talk about it. But you and I right now, Wes, we're conspiring, right? Together, we're doing things behind the scenes to try and make America better. There are 
people working at hospitals day in and day out who are conspiring with each other to try and save lives. You know, there are people in churches every day that are working together to try and provide for people who are in need. There are people all throughout our government. You know, everybody likes to act like, oh, the, the government, as if the government is not chocked full of American citizens. But there are people who are conspiring to make sure that vaccines are getting produced and purchased and distributed. There's, you know, there's conspiracies all over the place. And just because people are doing things behind the scenes doesn't make it inherently evil. And there are even just people in neighborhoods, you know, conspiring. I have a guy two doors down who will take his snowblower and go down the whole block because he knows somebody might not be able to get out. I mean, I've been having back problems lately and I think and Sass would love him. You know, remember the, remember the scoop <laughs> yes. your neighbor's walk uh, scoop reference? Your neighbor's walk. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Bring somebody cookies. My, one of my best friends lives two blocks away from me. And there's not a day that she goes to high V without asking me if I need anything. You That's know, nice. people, people are conspiring all the time to help each other out. And this idea that, um, but yes, I, I really wish people would, you know, if they're going to call themselves a free thinker, then please turn your, put your thinking caps on and realize that a, a bent is not a lie. And I'm pretty sure people know the difference and it's just easier to, to dismiss an entire industry as corrupt and we're not all 100% good or 100% exactly. bad. Every news source isn't 100% accurate or 100% inaccurate. Mm -hmm. uh, the world isn't uh, binary. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's gray. Yep. Or with pretty rainbows. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> it's a kaleidoscope, Wes. It changes every day. All right. And that it's works. beautiful. <laughs> that works for me. Okay. Oh. Well, I think that concludes episode episode number two, doesn't it? Yeah, I reckon it does. I reckon Do you, it does. Were you going to give a shout out to some of the people that uh, have helped helped us out here? Yes, indeed. I wrote up a little thing like real podcasters do. So theme, theme music was written and produced by Wes's friend, David Moore. This has been presented to you today by Wes Dodge and Erica Shower, produced by Colleen Woodward. And our platform is being provided by Midwest Misfits. Thank you so much. Everybody have a good one. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.